It's March. It's Monday. It's the mess hall here on Views from the Crow's Nest. Three M's in a row. I think that calls for a new intro song. What do you think? Let's try it out. Hello again, listeners, and welcome back to Views from the Crow's Nest, a podcast about emerging trends in finance, technology, and various other domains of the business sector. This podcast is produced in-house for Fisher Jordan. We are a New York-based consulting thought leadership and outsourcing firm, helping business leaders exchange complexity for clarity. We use rigorous data analytics, specialized staffing, and tailored technology solutions to deliver workable strategies for clients in financial services and healthcare. Find out more about Fisher Jordan online at fisherjordan.com. That's F-I-S-C-H-E-R, Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N.com. So, the podcast may be called Views from the Crow's Nest, but this series is called The Monday Mess Hall, which is something that we've started somewhat recently with a few guidelines in mind. First, it's the Monday Mess Hall, which means we are trying to record, edit, and release the conversations in the same day. So anything you're hearing in this episode was just recorded this morning. Secondly, our full-length episodes are more of the classic interview style with subject matter experts, but we wanted the conversations on the Mess Hall to be a little more off the cuff, while also focusing more on current events or hot-button topics that are even more specific than the trends we discuss in our longer-form episodes. We only give ourselves a few hours to research the topics ahead of time, because although expertise is welcome, the conversation is the point on the mess hall, not necessarily finding solutions. Currently, the Monday mess hall conversations are between Fisher Jordan team members, but if you would like to get in on this, please reach out to us at engage at fisherjordan.com. Let's get to the conversation. Welcome to the mess hall here on Views from the Crow's Nest. Today, I have, uh, once again, Boaz Salik here, and I also have uh, Neat Shaw with me today. This is all the, the partners and then just me kind of in the middle causing problems. I'm excited about this discussion today. As always, we try to pick topics that are somewhat current events for this particular series that we do here, or at least like start at a current event or recently current event and maybe zoom out and talk about some of the trends that are that are represented by that topic. So today on deck for a discussion, we're going to talk a little bit about the five-day work week and whether or not that is more optional now than it was uh, before, which I know is a topic that's been discussed during the COVID pandemic in particular. Uh, we're going to talk about financial services, um, but we're going to specifically talk about the idea of that domain as an enforcement arm of political willpower. Um, we'll look at some of the implications of that today. And then also uh, some recent developments with uh, blockchain adoption in the healthcare sector. Those are some of the things that we have to look at today, uh, and um, we'll see where that goes. But Neat and Boaz, thanks for being here. Good to be here. Looking forward to it, Nathan. So let's kick it off and talk with that first topic. Um, that'll just be an easy one to get us into. The, the, the overarching question that I have for us is, do we think that the five-day work week is now optional? Um, the article reference, as always, that we kind of started our discussions with, I'll put all those in the description. Um, but uh, this starts, or I started on this topic because of some comments that the New York governor made 
um, recently about maybe COVID likely killed off the traditional work schedule. Um, we've written some things about like home-based servicing and uh, the, the flexibility options of, of telecommuting and things like that. But I just wanted to open that up to you guys and see uh, both in your own experience and also just as you kind of watch the way the nature of work has kind of shifted. What are your thoughts on this topic? So, so Nathan, you know, when you first uh, suggested this topic, the the thought that kind of sprung into my head was was not so much about, you know, where we're going to work from, but are we going to have a five-day work week versus a four-day work week or, you know, somewhere in between? And honestly, like, like um, the reason why we have weekends and holidays is because we get tired, right, uh, of work. I, I think, you know, rather than thinking about, you know, whether we should be having a five-day work week or, you know, six-day work week. In India, still, most people work six days and, and you know, a lot of people work seven days after me. I think the more interesting thing is, you know, how do we make work interesting enough that people don't need that break, right? Or don't need so many breaks. So, you know, that's the way I, I, that's the first thought that kind of sprung into my mind. Then, you know, later on, I realized that, hmm, you know, when you sent me that article uh, from the from the New York governor, it's like, okay, this is maybe not just about how long we work, but also where we work from, right? I think kind of automatically when we have that flexibility to work from home uh, or to work from, you know, some beautiful place uh, while we're out on the beach or whatever, I think that automatically solves a lot of these problems, right? Because you get to refresh yourself regularly and gives you that flexibility. So I actually think that we might end up working more than five days uh, when we're given that flexibility. Yeah, it's funny you said that, Nate, because when, when I saw five-day work week is dead, I was thinking, has it been replaced by the seven day work week? Cause it, it just seems like <laughs> now we're all more con connected 24 seven, basically. I mean, I know you're probably in the same boat Nate, but you know, we can get messages at any time of the day or night on our phone. And you know, it's not, there's no gun to your head saying you have to respond, but I think more often than not, we do respond to those things. Yeah, absolutely. And, and honestly, it's like, um, you, you know, just on a personal level, I actually like, uh, you know, working a little bit on holidays or on weekends, you know, like spending a couple of hours in the morning, because I feel like that's when, like, um, you know, I'm, I'm well rested. You know, my brains are the sharpest. So I actually, actually enjoy that. Uh, you know, as long as I get, you know, some free time to, you know, do whatever other. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm totally down for the seven-day work week. And I think it it really taps into an important aspect of of the question, which starting with the like you said the discussion of when or how long the work week goes what the topic really is when you see that other people writing about this other people talking about this is how can we rethink the nature of work in general so that it is either more fulfilling for folks or uh, something that makes makes it less focused on just outright productivity maybe and making the productivity aspect like a one part of a larger puzzle i think so maybe yeah it looks like more distributed work hours across longer sets of days kind of thing um so i i, I think i agree with you guys where there's a little bit too much focus on um well okay now it's time to and we've we've got all these new like digital technologies that are enabling different workflows so now this is the thing that we need to focus on but um 
just one aspect i think of of a larger a larger shift and it, it will be as with a lot of these things it'll be really interesting to check back on it maybe like even as soon as like two years in the future and just see like where do things lead us um, from where we kind of started here. I mean, generally when you see a politician talk about the future of business, you should uh, probably take it with a grain of salt because you don't know if they're talking about the existing reality or what they wish the reality was or what they want the people to wish the reality. You just, it's hard to dis- to kind of disentangle those things in my mind. Mm-hmm. If we start seeing industry leaders calling the end of the five-day work, I think that'll be a very different discussion. The other component here, so, so it's it's almost bimodal in terms of at least what I perceive to be going on, which is in some cases people are, are working uh, more, as Neat mentioned, like people are letting work spill into vacation time. You know, there's a whole workation trend that's been getting a lot of momentum since COVID and just higher levels of availability during non-work hours is happening as well. But on the other side, you also see a lot of people unplugging completely and saying, you know, this whole idea of, of you know, graduating from college, taking an entry-level job, working 80-hour weeks, and kind of clawing my way up the food chain, et cetera, just isn't for me. So peace out, and um, let's see what happens from now on. I'm going to go start my own, you know, gourmet pea farm whatever it is they're they're going up to start and you see that happening as well so it's almost like there's a bimodal thing happening in the workforce in my mind and i think that there's there's room for that in this conversation right where if we're overall saying that the existing one size fits all model no longer needs to apply to everyone then it can i don't think it's an attempt to apply a new one size fits all approach it's kind of saying rethink it as you need to business leaders will do it for their their organizations and and individuals will do it for themselves i think i'm interested in really both sides of it getting into our second topic that i already uh, previewed for us again in uh starting in new york news uh we're headquartered in new york as i've said um it's not like (laughs) we only talk about things that are going on in new york this is just things that have come across my plate uh, from my initial topic research here. But again, responding to a news story from uh, the governor of New York. Basically, uh, she announced either late February or earlier last week, announced actions to strengthen the Department of Financial Services enforcement of sanctions against Russia. Uh, we don't necessarily have to talk too much about the specifics of that, um, but I'd like to hear your guys' input, um, particularly with our, our deep expertise in uh, the financial services domain. Does the idea of financial services as an enforcement arm of political willpower, does that feel like a growing trend to you guys or just an emergency use case kind of scenario? I just want to put that out there on the table and see what you guys think. Uh, and also just what your reactions are um, to to the topic in general. So, Nathan, so you, you gave two options. One was, is it a new trend or is it a one-off thing? But to me, there's a third option, which is, I, I mean, to me, finance has always kind of been inextricably linked with both exercises of political power and also as a means of war, right? I mean, if you go even go back to the Revolutionary War and the fact that uh, we had to send Jefferson across the pond over there to talk to to our French brethren and help get their help financing the war. And it even goes back further than that. If you look at 
you know, Greek times, Roman times. It's always been like finance has always been inextricably linked as as a fundamental means of war, and at times can can tilt the balance uh, in terms of who prevails in a conflict. So I, I don't think this is, um, you know, I, I wouldn't call it kind of like a new thing. The thing that may be new is the the degree of international coordination that's now possible. It does point to it being the concept being nothing new. Um, just looking a little bit different in this day and age. The interesting thing about if, if you're talking specifically about some of these sanctions that that obviously have, have been imposed recently on Russia um, in terms of the Ukraine conflict, if you look at, at the, call it the recent history of sanctions, so let's say last 50 years or so worth of, of different kinds of sanctions that have been imposed on different countries, it seems pretty clear that there are some things that sanctions are good at at bringing about and some things that that they're not necessarily that effective at bringing about right so if you start with a good i mean they're extremely good at punishing a population right whether you're talking about a cuba or a north korea or an iran or uh etc cetera, etc cetera. but you you can see a lot of a lot of places where you've had sanctions placed especially for for prolonged periods of time you do see that driving a country backwards in terms of growth, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of um, cost of living, etc. So that part is clear, you know, one of the things that sanctions can create. The, the part that is not clear is, does it bring about things like regime change? And that, I think, has been very spotty. You know, I mean, it's actually pretty hard to think about a, a recent case, a major case where slapping down major sanctions has brought about regime change. A lot, a lot of times it actually allows the existing leadership to dig in because we all know that in times of scarcity, that scarcity can actually be used by, uh, you know, by the existing people in power as a means of controlling the population. So I guess that that's the part that that's still in question as to, you know, how can, can something like economic sanctions and financial pressure bring about change in the target country? Yeah, I, I also am beginning to wonder, like, you know, given what's currently happening with uh, the Ukraine, whether sanctions will actually begin to be viewed as an act of war in themselves, right? Like, if, if sanctions are being applied, like, on a relatively small and less powerful country, that country may not be able to do too much about it. But in this case, with Russia, it's a completely different game, right? Like, who knows how they're going to react to this, you know, if push comes to shove. Especially, I think, you know, today and yesterday, they've actually started thinking about imposing sanctions on uh, the sales of oil, right? So that's like 50% of their income. So at that point, I think they might just view that as a, an act of war. That's a really interesting take, Neat. The ramifications of it are big enough that we could consider it an act of war. The thought that I'm having immediately is, is that, yeah, maybe we haven't given enough credit to the domain of finance uh, in its influence here. Yeah, especially, I mean, you know, like 2000 years ago when economies were, you know, more local, right? I mean, they could sustain themselves with just local trade, right? The impact of financial sanctions would have been minimal. But now, you know, some countries only do certain things and, you know, they cannot survive without trade. So then with financial sanctions, it becomes very challenging for them to, to survive even. The other element to keep in mind here is that 
like any major lever, the, the financial lever almost always brings with it unintended consequences, right? And as Nate said, especially when you're applying it at such a grand scale, right? This is no longer kind of freezing Cuba out of the North and Central American economy. Now you're taking a major geopolitical player out of this um, world trading system that we've got going on. And uh, almost kind of, you know, I know, I know this, this might be a trite analogy, but, but you are almost kind of pushing things backwards into what back when the Iron Curtain was up and there was actually very little trade with Russia and, and the countries behind the Iron Curtain which hopefully is not the direction we're going in. But in any case, you you always have to think about what could be the unintended consequences. So in this case, what we're doing, you know, if you look at what Russia has done, let's say with their credit card processing system, is they've built a homegrown system that can replace Visa and MasterCard in the wake of the 2014 sanctions, kind of in anticipation that, okay, there'll probably be a come, come a day when the West is going to weaponize the, this network, so we need our own network, right? In other cases, when you know when there's um, you know uh, limited places to source certain things, R Russia has agreements in place with other players like China uh, to be able to source those things and kind of create their own little trade network. So, uh, are we cutting them off from trading with the West? Yeah, in a lot of cases we are, um, especially. And by the way, the the interesting thing about this sanctions regime is the number of um, private corporations, private and public corporations that have also participated, uh, which you don't usually usually see that being a much slower follow than what we've seen in this case. In this case, it's been almost concurrent with the government imposed sanctions. But in any case, we are kind of pushing Russia and whoever else is going to get hit by these sanctions into more of an orbit with China uh, than, than they already were. Um, and so now are, are we kind of strengthening China's hand in this whole thing? So there are a lot of kind of um, secondary and tertiary ramifications that need to be thought through with these things. Yeah, and, and you know, just drawing a parallel with what happened during COVID, right? Like, like at least in India, um, some of the lockdowns went on for so long. Um, and, you know, in effect, it cut off people's income, right, for so long. So it was almost like the cure was worse than the actual disease. Um, because so many people lost their livelihoods, um, it it ended up affecting them much more than than the virus, right? So I wonder if you know when you impose such severe sanctions, the amount of damage you're doing to the population of the country would be way more than say you would you know in a military conflict. Uh, it's just not visible. It's just not immediately visible. It's it's not just happening at one place, right? It's kind of like a slow sort of effect happening across the entire country so it's kind of hidden but the damage may actually be just as bad if not more to your just to build on, on what you're saying it's why are sanctions viewed as a, an acceptable measure whereas let's say something like a no-fly zone is not viewed as an acceptable measure right is it really because they create less damage or is it just because there's just precedent, right? That like there's a lot of precedent behind being able to impose sanctions without any mil military ramifications from the other side. And so we're kind of going down that safe path, but is there a limit to how far you can go down that path before you do get some kind of blowback? Yeah, because in the end, again, it, it seems like, you know, the whole purpose of, of you know, it's, it's like when someone bombs a civilian area, you know, there's all kinds of outrage, right? But like when you're imposing these, 
severe sanctions, you're affecting civilians the same way. I mean, not the same way, in a different way, but probably um, just as badly in many cases. So, you know, it's, it's worth thinking about. This is good. I like hearing, again, the starting from a, a specific instance and then kind of pushing out a little bit into related territory here. I actually don't know if I've heard anybody saying things like this so far. So I, or maybe I just haven't been reading the right things yet, but I appreciate the new contribution to um, the discussion from this angle. Certainly very interesting, but when I get onto the last topic, if we have time. Always trying to push forward world thinking, Nathan. It's <laughs> the idea here. Let's move on to our last topic then. Um, again, I, I, I mentioned it at the beginning. We talked about um, some developments with uh, blockchain adoption in uh, healthcare. Uh, the specific topic here uh, relates to um, there is a uh, healthcare blockchain technology and services company named Avenir Health uh, that they announced in January uh, new backing. They are now receiving new backing from um, several pretty pretty big name healthcare organizations who are committing uh, $50 million in seed funding to the Avenir Health Network. This continues to be uh, related to our uh, our article a while back about um, the pace of blockchain adoption specifically, but I'm there's a couple ways that we can talk about this today. I think the main one that I I started with is if healthcare, which is an industry that's been working toward digital transformation at varying scales for the last several years, more broadly adopts blockchain technology. Do we think that this will help accelerate the adoption of the technology in other contexts? that are usually slow to move to new technologies. But we could also talk about a different aspect of this, which is we have uh, served a, a fair number of clients in the healthcare space and what it takes to implement new technology in healthcare overall. Uh, there, so there's a few different takes that we can have with this new story. Um, so I'll just kind of see how you guys pick it up and we can direct the discussion from there. Honestly, I haven't read too much about this topic. Um, so firstly, thank you for bringing it to our attention. But I, I think, you, you know, based on whatever work we've done in the healthcare industry, one of the constant complaints we hear is how, you know, it's like broken these little, you know, islands or fiefdoms, right? And there's, it's very difficult to often share information um, across these boundaries, right? So anything that helps break down those barriers, I think is extremely valuable. Um, and it sounds like, uh, you know, what Avenir has going is in that direction. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I, I would say, generally speaking, Nathan, if, if you look at different industries and, and we've, uh, Nita and I and, and the rest of the Fisher Jordan team, have, we have had the fortune to work with a lot of um, different industries in the capacity of, of data analysis and data mining. Um, and Nita, I think you'd probably uh, agree with me that healthcare is viewed as the most security sensitive industry, um, you know, with HIPAA laws and privacy laws and, and regulations and even in terms of the policies and procedures that that the big healthcare companies have in place, um, absolutely the highest level of data sensitivity. So if you see 
the industry that has that that level of sensitivity start to move its data towards blockchain or even contemplate that i do feel that adds a lot of credibility at least to the security layer of, of blockchain technology if nothing else before i was doing what i'm doing at the firm now as you guys know i was um involved in organizational technology restructuring pr primarily for uh healthcare entities or a few others in there but those were a lot of the the clients that we were servicing and and the security aspect was huge especially because it looks different depending on which aspect of like a hospital system you're looking at and there would be things proposed in terms of uh, for that information sharing uh aspect that you brought up neat um for instance like communication tools for uh nurses that were more based on the idea of of text communication but like worrying about encryption and all that and then there there were related but also totally different concerns for the people that were worrying about cloud storage um and the the security of the data that that was not being communicated in real time but was still being stored so that's actually a really good point boaz i feel like there's been kind of different takes on like uh eh, do we want do we not want to to trust the security of the blockchain in concept it's good um but there haven't been big enough i think moves so far to to really demonstrate that somebody's kind of giving it their their vote of confidence so if the if the healthcare domain is is saying like this is the move we're going to do this um that that definitely i think plays well uh in terms of overall trust in the the security aspect and maybe more than just security. Yeah, I think security is definitely a huge part of it. And then just the standardized protocols for receiving and transmitting um, information, that'll be the second part of it. Because right now, you know, I, I know that, you know, every system has like a different set of protocols. There aren't always standard APIs. So it's like actually, you know, getting access to certain data is often a month-long project so just that standardization could actually help a lot yeah i agree the, even um you know obviously there's been this trend since 2008 2009 to to move to emrs but but still if you have records on two different emr systems good luck being able to marry them together and and do the matching and data cleaning and whatnot so if blockchain moves us anywhere closer to a single source of truth that has to be a good thing with that said, <laughs> looking at the flip side of it, so let's say it's been what, like 13 or 14 years now since the original, I think it was Obama era mandate for all healthcare providers to move to some form of EMR. And I think we're maybe generously, we're at that like 70 to 80% mark of adoption, probably closer to 50 or 60%. So, so that just as an industry, healthcare is tremendously complex with a lot of different players at a lot of different scales and things are changing rapidly you know technologically and process wise so so things happen slowly in the healthcare industry and i'm sure um, i'd be i'd be surprised if blockchain wasn't on a similar trajectory of okay this is kind of the opening salvo but the whole game will play out in terms of decade not not like months or years probably would be my guess yeah, I definitely don't think it's going to be a snap your fingers and we're done kind of thing, especially because to your point, Boaz, the digital transformation efforts like have have been underway 
for quite some time. And then you end up with these kind of strange states where legacy technology is still being used in certain areas and for certain aspects while there's this kind of new shiny layer being brought in for others, but it's not fully, it hasn't fully permeated all of the procedures and, and processes. I think what I'd like to close out this topic with is just, I'm trying to think of other domains that have similarly complex or a similar degree of complexity to healthcare, and potentially also with a similar level of security concern that might be more willing to invest in in a blockchain move. And of course, the immediate thing that comes to mind is, uh, again, financial services, but there's been, we've talked about varying degrees of movement um, for uh, financial entities in blockchain. But um, I'm curious if you guys think that this, things like this will help accelerate some of the moves in in similarly complex domains. What do you think? I mean, financial services obviously comes to mind and they're way ahead of other industries in terms of blockchain and obviously the original kind of uh, the OG of blockchain is is Bitcoin, which is primarily a financial transfer protocol. So uh, I would think that's where people are looking for leadership. Now, what's exciting is dot, 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 that now people are starting to think outside that box um, and you know, thinking of blockchain in non-financial terms. And over the long term, that has to be kind of the greater potential of the technology, right? So beyond just, you know, transferring value from point A to point B. It is too bad that we are only doing audio versions of this because we've we've got just some really great beard stroking shots of Boaz here, just pondering. Maybe eventually we'll, we'll like- You can have a premium over. subscription with- uh, <laughs> some of the more visual aspects if you want. yeah exactly well gentlemen thank you for being a part of this discussion today guys uh really uh value your input and uh value the discussion itself the hope is that we're able to speak from a position of at least our our background kind of coming into play here but it's also just interesting to to um pull in different aspects of life experience in, in this particular series that we're doing here on the podcast. So neat. Great to have you back. Uh, Boaz, thanks for being a part of it again. And uh, hopefully you can do this again soon. Thank you, Nathan. It was fun. Thanks, Nathan. That's it for this episode of Views from the Crow's Nest. As with any other podcast, if you enjoyed what you heard here today, we would appreciate it if you left some sort of rating or review on your podcast app of choice or you can share it with a friend or colleague if you think that they would enjoy the content that we are discussing here. My name is Nathan Johnson, and from all of us here at Fisher Jordan, thank you for listening, and we will see you from the crow's nest.